This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. My wife and I moved into our new apartment just a few months ago. Before this, we lived in a large cottage overlooking a beautiful lake. It was my wife's dream home for the three years we lived there. We didn't want to leave, but it was a necessary step for us. You see, Jessica and I used to live down south. Everything was going well for a while, but my law firm decided to promote me out of the blue. It was unexpected, but I couldn't have been more grateful. Unfortunately, the job entailed transferring to another one of our many branch locations. The one in question was in New England. We spoke long and hard on the matter, but eventually, Jess agreed to move. It's important to note that the dollar doesn't stretch as far up north as it does down south. It's also harder to find employment. And that's why we were downgrading our living space. Until Jess could find another job, we would have to suffer. At least, that's the way she looked at it. So, tensions were high the first few weeks after the move. I could tell Jess was irritable. She missed our old house, our old friends, and working a steady job. She had nothing to do with all of her free time, so she was bored out of her skull. This led to many fights, and for a while, it seemed like we would never settle in. About a month after the move, things started looking up. Jess found temporary work as a part-time editor at the local TV station. She loved the work and couldn't have been happier with her co-workers. I couldn't have been happier for her. Everything seemed to be fine for a while. It wasn't perfect, but it was fine. This is when the sleep-talking began. It was to be expected, and honestly, I'm surprised it didn't start up sooner. You see, my wife is a restless sleeper whenever there is a big change in her life. Good or bad. It happened when we got married, when we moved into our first home, and when she had the miscarriage. I'll touch more on that later. Jess knows she sleep talks because I used to bring it up from time to time. I would laugh each morning, recalling the weird things she said the night before. And this always made her uncomfortable. She seemed to be embarrassed by it. And that's why, after her first night of sleep talking in her new apartment, I didn't say anything. The sleep talking went on for a couple of weeks. It was at this time that Jess's temporary job at the TV station came to an end. Without a job to keep her mind off of things, her nightly outbursts became much worse. She began screaming at odd times during the night, in which I would be forced to calm her down. One night, her screams turned into tears. As she was crying, she said something I'll never forget. I wish you were dead. I knew my wife was asleep, but as I sat there by her side, calming her the best I could, I felt the need to press the matter. You wish who were dead, hun? 
and to my surprise, she responded, You. This caught me off guard. It's a strange thing to want your husband dead, and even stranger while you're asleep. Why? I asked. Because you're ruining my life. These four words cut deep. Whether they were meant or just merely the product of a tired mind, they were the kind of words that demanded self-reflection. I wondered for a moment if I was truly ruining her life, or at least if I were to blame for her night terrors. My wife remained silent for the rest of the night, and I know this because I stayed up. Contemplation and worry kept me from a good night's rest. I didn't believe for a second that my wife really wanted me dead, but her late night antics were certainly a cause for concern. Between the screaming episodes and the morbid dialogue, this was the worst her condition had ever been. The next morning, I came pretty damn close to telling her about what had happened, but I kept thinking about how she'd react and what she would say. It was just all too much. I didn't want to burden her any more than I already had, especially after she'd just been laid off. I also didn't want to have another fight, so in light of this, I kept my mouth shut. The following night, the screams were gone. This was a comfort, but a fleeting one. Out of the blue, just as I was about to shut my eyes and call it a night, the sleep talking commenced once again. Sometimes I think about how I would do it. I chalked the statement up to pure dream-induced nonsense, but then she continued, While you're asleep in bed, I'll get up and go to the kitchen. I didn't know what she was talking about. But as she kept speaking, it dawned on me. There were some moments of inaudible gibberish, but from the bits and pieces that were fluent, I could paint a pretty good picture of what she was describing. Reach into, grab knife, over and over again, blood oozing off the bed. Can't ruin my life anymore. My wife was describing her plan to murder me. As deeply unsettling as this was, I couldn't help but chuckle to myself. It was just a dream, after all. Nothing more. I can't say I haven't done some weird things in my own dreams. Things I would never do in real life. Jess was mad at me over the move, and she was working out her frustrations while she slept. At least, that's what I convinced myself. The sleep talking continued for a few weeks. I hoped that Jess's midnight venting session were doing her some good, but without a degree in psychology, I couldn't be certain. All I could do was listen to her ramble about offing me each night and wait for her condition to run its course. The longest her sleep talking had ever lasted was a month, so it was safe to say that it would be over soon. A month passed and then two, but Jess didn't let up. Every night, it was the same routine. Either incoherent nonsense or babblings about how she'd like to hurt me. It was getting old, but one night changed everything. As my wife slept, she uttered some words that tore right through my heart. I lost my baby because of you. My emotions swirled about and formed a sour concoction that rested in the pit of my stomach. This time... I had to know what she meant. What do you mean, hon? 
There was a brief moment of silence, but eventually Jess offered me an answer. There was some more gibberish mixed in, but she was able to get her point across. You made me want kids. You put life in me. Now I'm alone. This struck a nerve and caused a few tears to roll down my cheeks. It was my idea to have a kid. Jess never wanted children. But she made herself want them for me. And that's why, after the miscarriage, I was surprised to find her absolutely devastated. I had no clue how much she'd warmed up to the idea of having a baby. My tears were interrupted by more sleep talking of the worst variety. I will kill you. I promise. And that was the last thing she said all night. It's been roughly a week since my wife made that promise. As disturbing as that threat was, I could have easily brushed it off with the rest, assuming it was, too, the byproduct of stress and was nothing for me to worry about. But unfortunately, I can't stop worrying about it. Jess is scaring the crap out of me. I'm now taking short naps and sleeping with one eye open. And it's all because of one thing. It's because now, she's sleepwalking. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone who grew up near Lake Wanapango had their own story about the lake. Some were your traditional and expected fish stories. And some dealt with summer love and improprieties. And others were tragic tales of misadventure. And then there were the other stories. One that spoke of great loss. The kind that does not stop when the sufferer passes on. Lake Wanapango held deep, dark secrets in its sandy bed, and sometimes those secrets floated to the surface. I remember well the night I myself came face to face with one of those secrets, and all my years of trying to forget have done nothing but burn it more firmly into my thoughts. I was never the fishing type. While it was the most common pastime for those who lived around the lake, it was just never my thing. I did not have the patience or the appetite for the long hours spent catching the local fare. It seemed wasteful to haul them up and to toss them back in. But still, like most folks around the lake, I had my boat. It was little more than a rowboat. I mean, it had a tiny outboard motor strapped to it, but I rarely used it. 
You see, I took the boat out not for fishing or swimming, but just to enjoy the water. I always went out at night, and the growl of the motor seemed overwhelming in the otherwise peaceful setting. So I used it as a chance to get a good workout in, rowing along to a few of the calm, quiet spots I knew of. The night in question was one of those nights hanging in between spring and summer. The air carried the thick humidity of summer, but still settled on the cool side of warm. It was heavy with the hopes and aspirations of summer. The crickets, frogs, and cicadas had all started their raucous chorus. So, I would say it was anything but quiet out there. But out on the water, it was still peaceful. There's something about Lake Wanapango that just feels right when the critters are singing out of key. There were two empty bottles in the bottom of my boat, and I was leaned back against the edge, the lake water gently rocking me back and forth. The sky stretched out like an endless canvas above me, inky darkness pierced by diamond light. The moon was full, glowing warmly down on the scene. I know that this memory is colored by nostalgia, cast glorious in contrast to the events that were to come, but I don't know if I could imagine something better and more peaceful than that evening. And maybe that's why it had gone so wrong. Perhaps beauty and peace like that simply cannot exist in this world for too long. The balance must be righted. In that moment of peace, there was a splash. Now, anyone who has spent much time on isolated waters can tell you a splash does not mean much. I was surrounded by all sorts of wildlife that may have wanted to slide into the water, or a tree branch could have fallen in. Heck, it could have even been one of the many local fishes swishing to the surface to snag an unfortunate water skimmer. There was no real reason it should have caught my attention. But part of what bugged me is that it did though. You see, whatever thoughts and reveries I had were lost and shattered along with the surface of the lake. I sat forward, scanning about. The boat listed a bit with my sudden movements, the bottles rolling and clanging in the bottom. The ripples began near an old fallen log that jutted its way into the river. Probably a turtle, I thought, swimming back to the shore after a long day of sunning. I tried to rest back against the boat, slip back into my quiet contemplation. But my ears were on edge, straining for any other sounds. Silence. Just complete and total save for the water lapping against my boat. The bugs and frogs had quieted down, and their absence made me feel suddenly self-conscious. I grabbed the oars to row back home, now feeling out of place on the lake that had always been home. And as my paddles dipped into the water, I imagined I heard an echoing splash hiding in their noise. It was paranoia, I told myself, or an echo from the banks. But still, my ears strained. I finally paused mid-stroke, the oars lying limp in the water, and heard another splash followed behind me. 
I spun around and watched as something broke the surface of the water. It was an arm, long and pale in the moonlight. I felt frozen to the spot, watching as the other arm rose and fell, gentle strokes pulling whoever it was steadily closer. I watched the faded shadow glide beneath the water, the feet arcing into the air and pushing it downward just before it reached my boat. Now, people did swim in Lake Wanapango, so I assumed I must have surprised the sunbather or skinny dipper with my evening sail. And I wondered who it was, since they had obviously made towards my boat and darted away to avoid detection. My mind wandered into a couple particular townsfolk, I would not mind stumbling upon skinny dipping, but before the thoughts could get too far, something bumped the bottom of the boat. I was alert, and I scanned the water, assuming it must be someone playing a joke on me after disturbing them. I was not too thrilled about the potential baptism I might endure if they took it too far. My goal was relaxation, not swimming in the murky water. I watched for them, trying to see when they would surface. But no one showed up. And that second bump, well, that was much louder. It sent me careening into the side and almost overboard. It was no longer a funny joke, and I grabbed the paddles again. They could spend all evening in the dark depths of Lake Wanapango if that's what they wanted to do, but... I was going to go home and put an end to the long day. The paddle in my left hand barely moved in the water before something latched onto it, ripping it from my hands. Wood splintered as it came free, disappearing into the water behind a trailing white arm. I watched it rocket to the bottom until I lost it in the shadows. I admit, I was cursing up a good storm out there on my boat. Down to one oar, it was going to take me a while to get myself home. This joke, well, it wasn't funny any longer. I took my remaining paddle and prepared for the long journey home. And only then, a hand appeared over the side of the boat. The fingers were long, pale, and greenish in the light. I assumed it was the reflection of the moon on the water or something, but now I'm not so sure. One thing I did note as weird was the webbing between the fingers and the long tapering fingernails. You see, that hand was attached to a long, slender arm. Suddenly a face broke the surface of the water. It was mostly human, but just not quite right. The eyes were too round, not the right oval shape. They also stretched a bit too big and had an unusual sheen to them. The lips were wide and flat, curled into a suggestion of a smile. Overall, the face was somewhat flattened, but she blinked those big shining eyes at me, and I was caught. Her hand, a bit slimy, very cold, trailed along mine winding up my arm. I felt myself leaning towards her, enraptured at the unnatural beauty. 
Her hair lay in wet ringlets along her body, and it was clear she was completely naked below the water. I could not tell you what else was going on in the world around me then, because my entire being was consumed with devouring her presence. It was as if I had never experienced human connection until that point. Her lips slipped into an alluring smile, an unspoken invitation to come closer. I tingled with the feeling of her hand on my arm, and only later realized that the tingle was not simply arousal, but a potent toxin that left my arm numb for hours after. In the moment, however, it was like bliss. Every nerve danced with her touch, sizzling to new life as her skin glided over my own. I was in the water before I realized it, drawn in by her smiling eyes. I felt as if I were diving straight into her pupils, drenching myself in their dark depths. But the muddy water of Lake Wanapango filled my mouth, its vile taste reminding me that this was no paradise. My arms flailed about, the one she had carefully caressed, flopping mostly useless in the water. I felt her hands running across my chest, the same burn of pleasure and paralysis following her fingertips. Now you would think I would have been able to realize the danger I was in with this mystery creature, but I felt no threat from her. Even as she gently tugged me towards the lake bed, I felt she was only interested in my well-being. She could have held me underwater and watched me drown as long as her eyes held mine. But no, it was not the awareness of her perilousness, but the long-forgotten admonitions of my parents. You see, you never go swimming if you've been drinking. It was a recipe for disaster. Their warnings ringing clear, I made for the boat. I suppose she sensed my intention to escape because those long nails on her hand began digging into my skin. Fortunately, she had well numbed most of my upper body by that point. I managed to flop into the boat, my vision going blurry around the edges, and eventually the moon was the only thing left, that and some thunderous pounding against the sides of my boat. I woke up the next morning, the heat having returned in force. My chest was sticky with blood, my head pounded, and my arms felt like they were filled with sand. It was a long, painful, excruciating trip back to the shore as I stared down a long road of recovery and failed forgetting stretching ahead of me. Most people blamed the bottles in the bottom of my boat for the strange report. I must have fallen in, gotten scraped up on some rocks. Others, I think, thought it was a suicide gone wrong. But I now know why the lake has claimed more than its fair share of victims. I know why men and women go missing out there with no sign of a problem in their peacefully floating boat. Now I stay away from the lake at night, and I got lucky once, and I'm in no mood to tempt the fates. I don't think I could resist those eyes this time, and I know I'd make my home on the sandy bottom of the lake if she ever invited me again.
So I'm sitting here with COVID and I work a full-time job and it's the company's policy that I take the five days off and then retest and hopefully it comes up negative and then mask for 10 days and I have no issues with that. But I'm the type of guy that I just need to be doing something all the time. There's only so much you could do around the house and I just can't sit and watch Netflix. I, I just... um I get way too antsy and I almost get like guilty that I'm not doing anything. So it occurred to me, why don't I upload a video for the members here on YouTube? I don't know why I haven't done this before. Maybe I have, but maybe it was years ago that I've done it. And it's something I probably should do. And I'm sure that you guys would enjoy every once in a while. So let's start doing that. I, I don't know why these things occur to me so late. It's just kind of like you go through your life, right? And you do the same things over and over and over. And when you're caught in that continual chain of repetition, it's, it's almost hard to think outside the box sometimes. And not that this is really thinking outside the box, but I mean, maybe it is because it just occurred to me. Anyway, let's do a story. It's going to be a quick one because like I said, I... I do feel like crap, but it's called In Between the Trees. Marnie strolled right into the woods and never came back. We waited for her. We could have just left the second she disappeared between the trees, but she seemed so damn confident that we waited. Nobody wanted to say it, but after two hours, we knew that was it. Sure, we had felt bad for Marnie. But if I could have said one last thing to her, it wouldn't have been, stop. It would have been, thanks. It was her and not me. So if I feel anything for Marnie, it's gratitude, not pity. In the end, it was probably always going to be her anyway. She found it. The small stone chapel had just sat there in its little clearing, protected by a ring of trees. Marnie saw it first and crashed through the bushes, calling out to us to follow. How had we never found it before? Perhaps it didn't want to be found. It was deeper in than we'd ever been, right in the heart of the woods, it felt like. The air was cold, and more than that, it was dead. Nothing moved or made a sound, and I know that place was never meant to be found. Not by human eyes, anyway. It was far too sacred for that. There were a few lines of stone pews and a raised stone altar. And that was it. And yet there was something more. There existed more in this place than could be seen. I wanted to leave, but Marnie thought it was funny. Why would they build a chapel all the way out here? She said. We shouldn't have done it. It was Marnie's idea, of course. Let's do a ritual sacrifice to appease the gods, she giggled. Elizabeth laughed too. She gave a fake little sermon at the altar, and we sat on the stone pews and bowed our heads. It was kind of funny, and it might have been fine if we stopped there, but Marnie was insistent. We need a sacrifice, she said. The others went off in search, but... I stayed seated. I should have just left, but there was something about that place. I felt connected to it. 
It was so calm. Marnie came back smiling, holding a tiny lizard. She carried it out in front of her, humming some sort of hymnal tune. She stepped up to the altar, holding the lizard down with one hand, and Elizabeth passed her a rock. She seemed less sure now. Marnie took it in her other hand and held it above her head. Mighty gods that bless these woods, she bellowed in a deep tone, please accept this humble sacrifice we offer you in exchange for your eternal favor. And then she brought the rock down. A couple of us gasped, but I don't think anyone thought she would actually do it. There was a tiny stain of black blood on the altar. A chill swept through the clearing, and that's when I knew we had woken them. The others must have felt it too because everyone wanted to leave, even Marnie. She waited a whole week before asking us to go back there with her. She passed it off as a sudden whim, but I could tell the idea had been preying on her. It was in her eyes. They'd lost all focus. We went with her right to the edge of the woods, and we all backed out. She laughed at us, said we were scared. We were scared, but we also weren't stupid. She tried to convince us, but in the end, the need was too strong. She decided to go by herself, and we let her. It was easier to not talk about it. The police had questions, but we never mentioned what had gone on in the woods. We all decided to stay away from that place except for Elizabeth. She would talk about it endlessly. She became obsessed. She pleaded with us to go back. She said Marnie was calling to her. She said she could feel that place calling to her. And I was terrified because, well, I had felt it too. Laying awake at night, feeling like my heart would just burst if I couldn't go back there one more time. It seemed to affect her more strongly. It's probably because she had been close to Marnie when it happened. And maybe they had sensed her presence. So, we all ended up back there at the edge of the woods in the exact spot where Marnie had left us. The others tried to reason with her, but Elizabeth was beyond that. As I watched her disappear into the woods, I whispered a final goodbye. We waited again. I don't know why. With Marnie, there had been some sense of hope that she would return. But this time... I think we didn't want her back. How long did we wait for? As long as it took. We almost couldn't believe it when Elizabeth emerged from the woods. She walked straight out as if everything was fine. She was scratched and disheveled and I don't even know if it was still her anymore. She walked up to us, just stood there looking around at each of us with a lovely little smile of anticipation on her face. In her hand, she held a heavy, pointed rock. Watch this, she said, and she smashed the rock into her left eye. Blood poured down her face as she let out some ungodly shriek. Some horrid mix of laughter, crying and screaming. And we ran. We left her there screaming and laughing as we ran. That high-pitched wailing was the last thing I ever heard from Elizabeth. The damage done to her eye was irreparable, 
and she was admitted to a mental institution. She's still there. Actually, it wasn't the last I heard of Elizabeth. Not exactly. I visited her just about a month after the incident. It was still her body, but any semblance of Elizabeth was long gone. She just sat there and looked at me, still with that faint little smile, her one good eye following my every move. I tried to talk to her. I wanted to apologize, but for what? I do not know. Throughout it all, she just sat there and smiled. Now, I didn't stay long. There didn't seem to be much point. She waited for me to reach the door before speaking. Was it a warning? Or simply her way of showing me she held me responsible? Regardless, I still hear that refrain echoing through my mind. In that childish little chant. The trees, the trees, they came from the trees. They wanted you, but they settled for me. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. Hey, you guys have Discord membership as well as YouTube membership, as well as the patrons. So I'm going to put a link in the video description if you guys ever want to hop on the Creepy Ghost Stories Discord. There's a bunch of good people over there. I hop on every once in a while, not as much as I'd like to, but um, there's some good conversations happening over there. You should check it out. I had moved into a new apartment with my girlfriend about two years ago. It was pretty small. It only had a kitchen, one bedroom, one bathroom, and a living room. All of the rooms might have been small, but the rent was good, and we really didn't care. Neither of us made enough money to move out of the place, so we tried to make the most of it. One of the oddest things about the place was that the left wall was completely hollowed out, and the right wall was rock solid. I didn't even notice when we first moved in. Our neighbors were always quiet and kept mostly to themselves. And when we moved in, the only neighbors we had were the whites. The whites were to the right of us, and they were an elderly couple. They were nice to us. When we had first moved in, they brought us a welcome to the building present which is what they do for all the new people who had moved into an apartment in the building. It was a small apple pie, which was actually quite good. About five or six months after my girlfriend and I moved in, there was a new guy that had moved to the apartment to the right of us. I remember first meeting him. I'd just gotten back to the building with some groceries, and as I climbed up the stairs to my apartment, I accidentally bumped into someone. Sorry, excuse me, mister, but I didn't know who the guy was. Our building is fairly small, and just about everyone knows everyone else. The man I had bumped into was middle-aged, probably in his mid-fifties. Something about him was odd, though. He had deep wrinkles, pale white skin, and long greasy black hair that was unkempt and around his face and back. He looked rather sickly. Like, he really needed to see a doctor. 
His eyes were a solid dark purple, which is something that I'd never seen before in my entire life. Peters, the man said with a grin that stretched ear to ear. His teeth were disgusting. They were unbrushed and looked like they were rotting away. I could still smell his putrid breath, which seemed to reek of old decaying meat. Although his appearance was a little bit creepy, he seemed nice enough. Nice to meet you, Mr. Peters. My name's Matt. Are you new to the building? I asked. Mr. Peters' smile grew even bigger. I don't know how he, let alone any human, could smile that wide. Yes, I'm moving in. And I'm going to be living right next to your apartment, he said as we both walked up the stairs to the top floor. When we reached the top floor, Mr. Peters' pace increased as he quickly walked to the door, opened it with his key, and shut the door behind him. It was odd, though. He did it so quickly, it was like a blur. I sighed to myself. Great, now I have a freakish neighbor, I thought to myself as I turned the handle of my door. It was about 4 p.m. My girlfriend, Sandra, was still at her job. She's a hairstylist, and I'm a chef at a local Italian restaurant. I usually don't get off until later, but because business was slow that day and nobody was coming in, we closed early. I put the groceries down on the kitchen table and start to unload everything into the refrigerator. I didn't have much with me, only about one bag, a quart of milk, a few sticks of butter, ground hamburger meat, and a box of cereal. I then got a text message from my friend, Tyler. Bro, I just got my hands on the new Red Dead Redemption game, and you need to go out and get it so we could play together. That's what the message read. Now, I wasn't much of a gamer, but Tyler was one of my closest friends. We've been best friends ever since middle school. I did have an Xbox 360, and Tyler and I would play games together from time to time. I really didn't have anything better or more interesting to do, so I texted him back saying I would go out and buy it. As I was about to leave to go get the game, I heard a lot of banging coming from the wall. It was weird though because it was so clear. I went up to the left side of the wall and gave it a light tap with my knuckles. This was the first time that I realized that, for whatever reason, the wall was hollow like a log. I went to the right wall and repeated the process, only to be greeted with a thud. This wall was solid. I was puzzled on why in the world the builders of this place would make one wall solid and the other hollow. I was also curious as to what Mr. Peters was doing to make all of that noise. I just shrugged it off. Probably just moving things in or something. I told myself. But that couldn't be right. He didn't have anything with him when I saw him. I shrugged it off and left to go get the game. I got back around 5 o'clock with my new game and I was glad to discover the banging from Mr. Peters had stopped. I was happy with this. I really didn't care what he was doing as long as he did it quietly. I popped the game in and put my headset on. I've got a pretty good headset. Blocks out most of the sound. It was nice and tight around the ears. I loved it. Tyler and I played and talked for almost three hours straight. I would have gone longer, but Sandra came home about 8 o'clock. I told Tyler that I had to go, 
and that we would play more tomorrow after I was done with work. Tyler didn't have a job. He didn't need one. His father was a rich man who owned some oil company or something like that. Don't really remember. But I do know that he spoils Tyler rotten. Gives him tons of money for doing absolutely nothing at all. I powered off the console and got up out of my chair to give Sandra a hug. We talked about stuff like how our days went. Things like that. I then remembered Mr. Peters. Hey, did you know someone was moving into the apartment right next to us? I asked her. She told me that she was unaware of a new member joining our building. Weird that she didn't know of Mr. Peters. I decided that I would go ask Mr. and Mrs. White tomorrow morning. They know everybody in the building. They probably already have a pie baked and ready to send over to his apartment. Now, I didn't sleep very well that night. I had this insane dream about Mr. Peters just standing over my bed, my girlfriend laying beside me, smiling that terrifying smile. I was going to do something, wake up my girlfriend, run away in fear, anything. But I was stopped when he simply put his finger on my lips and quietly said, shh, in a soft, friendly voice. It didn't feel like a dream, though. Everything was so clear, and I could remember it oh so well. It's impossible that it was real, though. That's what my therapist told me, at least. After a long, sleepless night, I took a quick shower and was going to get some food for breakfast. I also noticed the banging on the wall from Mr. Peter's apartment. It was softer this time. A bit more creepy. After my shower, I went to my kitchen. Only something was off. A quart of milk, a few sticks of butter, ground hamburger meat, but no box of cereal. I looked everywhere, thinking I just misplaced it by accident. Sandra woke up, thanks to me, frantically looking for the box. Sandra, what'd you do with the cereal? I asked her while still looking in the various shelves in my kitchen. Didn't you put it in here? She asked while pointing to the spot where I swore that I put it. I could have sworn that I did, but I don't know where it went. Please tell me that you took it, I said, yet she continued to deny the accusation. I thought it was her regardless. I mean, who else could it have been? A burglar? No, a burglar steals boxes of cereal. I didn't pay much attention to it, though. I just said, guess I just grew a pair of legs and walked off and I forgot about the whole ordeal. I went over to the Whites and knocked on their door. I was greeted when Mr. White answered. Hello there, son. How are you this fine morning? He asked with his typical happy-go-lucky tone of voice. Hey there, Mr. White. Doing well, thanks for asking. But I came over to ask you about someone. Have you heard of Mr. Peters? I asked. Mr. White frowned when I asked. Well, no, I'm sorry, son, I can't say that I have. Who is he? He questioned. Well, he moved into the apartment right next to ours. I'm surprised that you don't know who he is. You, of all people in this building, would know if someone new was moving in. I said. Mr. White then smiled and said, Well, we should go and see how he's doing then. I think about it for a second, and then I took him up on his offer. And so the two of us walked over to his door and Mr. White knocked on it. We stood there for a little bit, only to be returned with silence. 
I found it odd that there was no response whatsoever. We didn't even hear any noises from the other side of the door. Hmm, well, he must be sleeping still, chimed in Mr. White. I found it to be reasonable for the lack of sounds coming from the other side of the wall. Well, how about we come back later and see if he's awake? I asked Mr. White. He agrees to the offer and says that he'll have freshly baked pie ready for when I get back from work. We part ways and I go about my day as normal. Then I got back home. I changed my clothes and then went to the kitchen to grab something to eat really fast before I went over to see Mr. White. I grabbed a chocolate bar and went to the refrigerator, but when I opened the door, I saw no quart of milk. Now I was starting to get annoyed. Was Sandra just pulling a prank or something? I got home before her again, so I decided to just go see Mr. White and talk to Sandra when she got home. I knocked on the door and got something I wasn't expecting at all. Mrs. White answered the door, tears running down her cheeks and red, irritated eyes. Hello, Matt, she said through her crying. I was completely caught off guard by this, and so I simply asked what had happened. It's George, my poor sweet Georgie, she said. Now, even though Sandra and I just called him Mr. White, we both knew his first name was George. What happened to him? I asked. He's gone. He just disappeared, she said through her now heavy sobbing. My mind rushed to one conclusion. Mr. Peters, why don't you follow me, Mrs. White? I rushed down the hall to Mr. Peters' door. I pounded my fist on it. I was once again returned with silence, complete and utter silence. Mrs. White came running down the hallway and caught up to me. Have you called the police about Mr. White? I asked. She nodded. They came over and I told them what happened. Now why are you banging the door? And who's Mr. Peters? I explained everything to her, and she too had never heard of him. Concerned, I pulled out my phone and dialed 911. Mrs. White and I waited for the police to arrive, but before they could get to us, Sandra came walking down the hallway. What's going on? She asked. I told her about everything that had happened. Mr. White and I coming over, the missing milk, and Mr. White's disappearance. Sandra waited with us for the police to arrive. They finally got to the apartment and I yet again explained my story. They both looked at each other and knocked on the door, also to be greeted with silence. They went to go talk to the building manager to see if they could get some more information, but he said that there was no Mr. Peters who lived in that apartment. Both the police and building manager returned to the door, master key in hand. The door then swung open. Nothing. It was just a normal, empty room. We all walked in, confused. Me more so than the others. And then I remembered. I walked over to the wall and gave it a light knock with my fist. The hollow walls made its standard sound. I called everybody over and showed that the wall was in fact hollow. What went from two police officers quickly escalated into ten. It took about three hours, but Sandra, Mrs. White, the building manager, and I all waited for the police 
to figure out what to do next. After some discussion, the decision was to knock down the hollowed wall, and what I saw next would change my life forever. It was a terrible sight. Mr. Peters lay quietly next to the dead corpse of Mr. White. His stomach messily flayed open. It looked as if Mr. Peters used his teeth to grind a large slit in his stomach, and then used his fingers to pry it open. But that wasn't the worst part of it. It was that in his opened up stomach was a pint of milk, cereal, and blood. There was so much blood, all over both of their bodies. Mrs. White didn't take it well. She was hysterical and started to vomit everywhere. Some of the policemen threw up as well, and even though I felt like I was going to, I resisted. Even though that sight was horrifying. That still isn't the worst part. The worst thing of the scene was his smile. He had that same ear-to-ear grin as he did when we first met. The police had their guns drawn, pointed right at him. But he just smiled straight at me. Straight into my eyes. His gaze sent chills running up my spine. He got up and stepped away from the body, his eyes never leaving mine, his smile never losing its size. The police brought him out of the apartment and put handcuffs on him. Another of the officers took Mr. White out of the hollowed wall, Mrs. White crying all the way. I feel for her, really I do. If I had found Sandra in that state, I don't know how I would react. Mr. Peters was taken away, and he was given the death penalty. I saw a therapist not long after the ordeal, and I still see him once every week. I'm writing this now just to warn everybody out there. When you hear banging on your wall or roof, or just hearing house noises, you might want to give it a closer inspection. It probably is just normal house noises, but after this event, I never took the chance. I'm still incredibly paranoid, and I remember one night at around 3 in the morning, I heard some banging coming from my kitchen. I got up as I always do, but this time was different. I saw Mr. Peters smiling at me, his teeth dripping with the crimson fluid, which had to be blood. I turned on the light and he simply vanished into thin air. I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't even believe in the supernatural or anything, but I know what I saw. He was just standing there, looking right at me, smiling that terrifying smile.